Well, good morning. We have gathered as God's people our call to worship this morning. Again, this is usually a scripture text that I take to kind of focus our thinking, focus our hearts, uh, step out of the rush of the morning into the presence of the Lord. And this is Psalm 100. Let's read responsibly if we can. It begins this way. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our opening hymn this morning is hymn number 599. I'll ask you to stand and let's sing together. Come Christians, join to sing. Amen. And have a seat if you would. 
Well, we have gathered, and it's always my joy to welcome you. First of all, those of you here on site, uh, come out that we might gather together in one space, in one moment in time to celebrate the goodness of God. But also, we welcome those of you online, uh, whether with our live stream or recording. Thank you for letting this moment become a part of your moment in that space. And I was talking with Larry Howard just back from traveling, and he said every time I would welcome folks online, he would wave and say, glad to be here. So today you get to do it on site. It's all good. Um, welcome to, in particular, we have a guest musician, a Hope College student, uh, clarinetist Mallory, is that Neebs? I spoke with her as Mallory, my, <laughs> sorry for earlier, but uh, at Hope from Indiana and with us here today, again, to share that gift of music as part of our worship. Um, after the service, we will continue our usual kind of coffee, juice, donuts, fellowship, a time to kind of introduce yourself to some folks, spend some time in life together. About 10.30, I open up things to kind of a question-answer uh, format in classroom number one, the uh, post-service follow-up. Folks get to interact with me. I'm always happy. Um, I'm always aware of what I say, but I'm also very interested in what's heard. And so that kind of communication is very, very helpful to me. A couple of slides. This Wednesday night, we've got the opportunity um, Liz Dealman, after our community night dinner, uh, will make the transition and then she will share with us some worship music. She is the daughter of Ron and Jenny, happens to be in town from Vancouver, uh, Canada. And so we'll share her original music. You can stay for, come for community night and dinner, but stay for the concert. Uh, next week, we'll also have opportunity for adults to stay and help our GEMS and Cadets ministry with um, activity going on. I'm sorry. Right. The, the Wednesday after that. Um, so this Wednesday, the concert, and the Wednesday after that, you'll hear the, have the opportunity with GEMS. Um, June 10th, we sent a mission team to Honduras. The deadline for signing up for that is January 29. Ask any of the folks on that mission team or call the office. We can get you more information. And um, we put something in the celebration inform. That's an email that goes out to those who've requested it every Thursday night at 7 p.m. If you get something earlier in the day, it's not the celebration inform, but in the inform was a, a graphic like that, and you can simply click that and give us your email, and we will sign you up to receive the daily prayers of Scotty Smith in your inbox. If you've come to celebration uh, regularly, you often hear me pray using the words of Scotty Smith from his daily prayers. I'll do that again today. But I'm anxious to give all of you that opportunity. So uh, look for that in the uh, Thursday night email from this week. Um, also, if you'd like other co contact or information, if you will text the word CONNECT, there's how you spell it, uh, to that number, uh, we'll be happy to send you a link to a form and anxious to get all that sort of stuff. 
Um, usually we take a moment and confess our faith using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. For this month, I've wanted to use uh, the words of the Apostles' Creed. And so we set that up last week, and boy, did we have a lively conversation in the Q&A about words. So I did due diligence this week. I went to the official website. You know, there's, there's heaven, and then there's the website of the CRC. And I got the, I'm just learning this. I'm, you know, I'm not a CRC guy. I had no idea. Um, so I got the official words and each week in January we'll use that. And I'll take some time to um, kind of dig into some of those words. Last week we talked about this idea of small C Catholic, which means universal. There's other questions that have come up in our Q&A. And so we'll deal with that week by week. Today I just want to establish but I have the words. So I'm going to ask you, out of a sign of respect and appreciation for the uh, history and those who have gone before us, why don't we stand together as we consider the faith, confirm it here as recalled in the words of the Apostles' Creed, together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, that is, the true Christian Church of all times and places, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen and amen. I ask you to have a seat. And now I'll let our hearts be set with this music, and then we head to prayer.
Thank you, Mallory. Our thanks. Before we pray, and I'll dismiss the kids after our prayer time, I want to give you just a little background on several of the things I'll be touching. One, the words of Scotty Smith that I'll use are from his July 11th prayer on Wednesday. Second thing, I'll be praying for a Chinese pastor. You've heard me talk about a pastor, Wang Yi. He was a lawyer for many years until he came to faith in Christ. And I first uh, ran into him, if you will, when I read his letter of faithful disobedience. And it has this line in it. It says, as, as the Lord's servant John Calvin said, any Chinese lawyer who knows John Calvin, I'm interested in. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. Well, Wang Yi is now imprisoned. And he's imprisoned by a regime that was established, if you know history, by Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong had a different sense of where power came from. He famously said, every communist must grasp the truth. Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Yes, we are advocates of the, interesting word here, omnipotence of revolutionary war. That is good, not bad. It is Marxist. Wang Yi has a sense of transcendent truth, and he lives in obedience to that even though now he's empowered by a regime that recognizes nothing but imminent truth, imminent power, the power of this world. See, there's a different way of seeing the world and different outcomes and consequences. So as I pray for Wang Yi, I've got a lot more information in links that you can find in Celebration Inform. I pass you on. I was struck this week, there's a, a new book. They've released Wang Yi's papers and letters. And so to be able to read those of a contemporary and someone who's shaped by John Calvin and living in light of God's truth rather than simply 
engaging the power of this world. Very inspiring. I encourage you to those links. Finally, I'm sorrowfully aware that today is the last day for a worship service at Bethany CRC. And while we ought to care for and receive and love those who are going through the trauma of a church closing, it also does as well, it seems to me, to very humbly and thoughtfully seek the Lord. How does this come to pass? Are there lessons to be learned? We're living in a country where the population is going up and the number of churches is going down. What does that mean for being faithful? That's a, a fair question, that even as we care for people in the midst of their loss, we need to ask ourselves and reflect on. So I, I encourage you into those things. Let's turn to the Father and pray here. Father, we thank you that you are the transcendent, holy, sovereign God of the universe. Thank you that we gather today to remember that you are omnipotent, not revolutionary war. And so we pray that your gracious, merciful character would be worked in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Teach us that kindness is the way of Christ, that self-sacrifice rather than self-aggrandizement, that humility rather than narcissism, and that security based on your grace rather than our demands is the way to fruitful and flourishing life. I pray for Hardwike Ministries that we might continue to grow deep in the gospel, inviting everyone to be found in, formed by, and following Jesus Christ. Shape us that we might be living in a world that you would have flourish. Fill us with great hope. We pray this day for Watershed and for Pastor Aaron as he shares the scripture with uh, people there, for Pastor JB Infusion, for Pastor Florencio. He'll stand right where I am in just a few hours and proclaim this same gospel in Spanish. We pray too for celebration, one aspect of the fullness of Heart Awake. Take a moment and we pray, Father, we lift to you in the silence of our hearts those we know and love who are unwell, troubled perhaps in mind, body, or soul, perhaps dealing with a hard diagnosis or the challenges of treatment or recovery. Pray for the unwell. Father, we pray for those whom we love, those a part of this body who feel hard-pressed and alone. There are a variety of reasons we enter into these experiences. Help us to sort through them and find your grace. We pray for those who feel hard-pressed and alone. Father, we pray as well for those who grieve. After a year of losses, we're experiencing a year of anniversaries. In a sense, we all face uh, this grief. But help us bear one another's burdens with words of encouragement. Pray for those who grieve. Finally, Father, for celebration, uh, let's take a moment and we pray for those who fear 
whether wounds of the past, whether fear of others, whether fear of disappointment or rejection. We know that life lived in response to fear will never be the fullness of life that you've called us to. So help us in Christ to face and deal with the fears that drive us. Pray for those who fear. Father, we pray for those in authority over us in our weekly cycle of this. We pray this week for local government and agencies, for Holland City, Park and Holland Township, for the Ottawa County, various boards and administrations, for school boards, public, private, charter, and otherwise. Father, we pray for the rule of law, for grace and justice and flourishing for all people. For those the characteristics that you have created into your world, make us committed to your goodness. Father, we thank you too that the gospel is not ours, but it's your gift to us as you've given it to all people. And so we thank you for the chance to invest, whether across the street or across the globe in the work of gospel missions. And we pray for a brother in Christ, Wang Yi, for his wife who's imprisoned as well. We pray that you would give them security in you and boldness, we pray for a justice that brings release for them. Let's meditate on these scriptures. Um, Scotty Smith pulls them to our attention. Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching from Hebrews. From Luke, he points us to bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. And finally, the words of Jesus again from Matthew, whatever is in your heart determines what you say. Lord Jesus, it is surprising, but it's right there in these two texts, as we long and wait for your second coming, the one thing that should mark our use of words is encouragement. Help us know what words of encouragement are so that we can speak them to others. Encouragement, not flattery, which is manipulation dressed up in party clothes. Not sarcasm, which is weaponized pain. Not denial, which is our humming in the midst of a tornado. Not overspeak, which is a refusal to listen. Not calling down fire, which is a forgetting of the gospel, which is instead the giving of grace. Even when we speak difficult words in a conflict or are confronting foolishness, our motivation by your grace ought to be mercy. The fuel of our words should be grace and the hope of our hearts should be healing. Guide us into that, Father. Finally, help us to know where true encouragement comes from. For only by having our hearts filled with you, only by setting our mind, will, and affections on things above, can we hope to speak truth that is encouraging, reconciling, and life-giving. Jesus, you only speak life to us. You never flatter or condemn us. You only encourage and build us up, even when you convict and discipline us. We thank you for that. Work that in our lives.
Father, we thank you that as we join with Jesus in the place of prayer, that you instruct and guide and build us. I pray that 2023 would be a year of deepening and enriching prayer life. We begin and we ask with these words that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. At this point, I see Miss Janet in the back. I'll ask any kids that are heading out to the children's ministry downstairs, head out with her, head to the back, and she'll make sure you get down there safely. I'm waving at her. We see her. You can head out, and we'll continue uh, in the service here. Yeah, head to the back if you're going off to the uh, children's ministry time downstairs. All righty? So long to our kids. Go in grace. Um, this week in our reading through the book, the story, and remember that's kind of a condensed, a Reader's Digest version, if you will, of the words of the Scripture. We're in chapter 14 called God's Messengers, and it's about, uh, we include the stories of Elijah, um, Mo, Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and Hosea. So if you've read through that, you'll recognize these various prophetic writings. And here I want to pick up in 1 Kings, and we read a bit of the story of the prophet Elijah. So let's turn to 1 Kings 1, 18, verse 1. I'm sorry. Here we go. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. A few uh, verses further down. When he, that is King Ahab, so there's King Ahab, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah says back to Ahab, the king, I have not made trouble for, Elijah, for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel, your wife's table." So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel, the northern kingdom, and he assembled the prophets of these false gods on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people said, nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, if you know the, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you know the rest of the story, there's a spiritual power encounter. 
and it's shown in fire that Yahweh, the Lord, is God by fire. It's an amazing, pressing, powerful time. Let's turn to the Lord and pray, shall we? O Lord, our God and Father, we thank you for your kindness and love that even in a world that's often confused, distracted, rebellious, that you, by your grace, have entered in to uh, make yourself known even through the life events of broken people. Thank you for the recording of this event centuries ago, for the way it's been remarkably preserved in texts across the centuries, so that now we can thoughtfully read and translate prayerfully study and meditate, and you've made a promise by the power of your Holy Spirit to meet us here and to instruct us and to lead us in the way of your grace. Be with us, we ask. Fill us with great hope. Guard your people from my own confusion and brokenness, but we pray in this day that Jesus would be clear. We thank you for the hope of the gospel and pray in his mighty name. And all of God's people said together, Amen and amen. Well, this week we step into several weeks of reading and study, and we'll be looking primarily at the prophets of God. And this idea of prophets, the role of prophet and the ministry of prophecy is bigger than just what we're reading. It actually goes from Abraham, who was called a prophet in Genesis 20, all the way to the book of Corinth, Corinthians. Centuries of time spread that prophecy functions. So I want to give you just a quick flyover. In the Old Testament, you begin to see the, the office or the role of prophet emerge right in the, for a new season of clarity, right in the history of God's people, Israel and Judah. And you see these historical prophets like we read about this week, Elijah and Elisha. You read about them in the context of the happenings of these nations. They're followed by the, what we call the writing prophets. These are prophets who had their sayings, the things that God inspired them with, had those written down, whether by their pen or by the another in their group as they gathered. So we have books, five major that include Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They've got their own books, their own writing. There's 12 minor prophets, and these minor prophets, critically important. You read two of them in the course of this week, Hosea and Amos. They're minor because their books are short, not because their message is less. Does that make sense? Very important. So you get these major prophets, the minor prophets, they're of the writing prophets, there's the historical prophets, but from Abraham all the way through the ministry of Paul, you're going to see prophecy at work. To really understand biblical prophecy and what it means, you've got to keep the whole Bible in mind. Now, let's go on. When you read the writing prophets in particular, but also Elijah, we'll see this morning, there's some major themes. One of them is this, justice in the land. Proverbs talks about how if you want to lend to the Lord, then give money to poor. God, who is just, created a world that runs best when it's functioning with justice. And so this is a major theme. And you'll remember last week when we looked at the kings and the division of the kingdom, there was King Rehoboam. The people came to him and said, give us a break. 
Your government building projects are killing us. Can you lower taxes just a bit? He said, no. He said, I'm going to exert my power. I'm going to build my reputation. And so this theme of justice in the land that runs through all of the writing prophets and in our text today is deeply based all through Scripture. Another major theme that you see in the prophets is a call to people not only to right behavior, justice in the land, but also to right worship a turn from idolatry. And this was the issue when the kingdom divided. There was King Rehoboam. There rose up to be King Jeroboam, but he led the people in idolatry. And these become kind of twin problems that the prophets are often speaking to. Injustice in the land, idolatry in the land, and they become a key and important problem. It runs all the way through this. You'll see it. I've pointed to how it grows out of last week with the kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, justice in the land, turn from idolatry. But we see him most clearly come to a pinpoint of focus in the ministry of Jesus. Do you remember Jesus is the one who said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That is turn from idolatry. It's the same message as the prophets. It's the summary of the law. And then also love your neighbor as yourself. That's a summary of the law. Jesus is just quoting Leviticus here. But this is also an expression of the message of the prophets. Justice in the land. You cannot benefit from structures of injustice and see a land flourish. That's part of the message of the prophets. And Jesus is the one who embodies and shows that. Final thing I want to point out about the prophets in this flyover, we tend in 21st century United States to misconstrue the prophets and kind of reduce them, miss their meaning in two different ways. One, we think of prophecy as prediction only. We try to figure out a train schedule for the future. Well, this will happen and that will happen and then the other. And this will be uh, in the headlines and that will be in the headlines. Because prophecy is the message of the sovereign God, it transcends time and history and it says some things about future. Yes, I get that. But the idea that the prophets gave us nothing but a train schedule with which to prepare for the future misses the point. The other way we reduce and miss the impact of the prophets is to think that they are just purveyors of a social policy agenda. You hear plenty of that. Well, the prophets said this, we've got to do that. Be careful. The prophets are that and more. And I hope you'll see it as we look at the life of Elijah and his ministry in this text this morning. It's kind of a, a comic moment in the scripture that I read from and that I want to look at in our remaining time. It's comic because here's Ahab the king and his first meeting with Elijah the prophet. Ahab, this is the guy with the army. Ahab says of Elijah, you troubler of Israel. It's comic because Elijah has no power. He has no army, he has no weapons, he has no lawyers, he has no following. He's been isolated at this point in the story for three years all by himself. His poll ratings are through the basement. But 
Ahab looks at him and says, oh, you troubler of Israel. How? If political power grows from the barrel of a gun, he's got no power. Why is Ahab troubled? This king, by contrast, has all the expressions of earthly power. Ahab thinks Elijah is the troubler of Israel and of himself the king, but here's the truth. Ahab has a bigger problem than Elijah. He should be up nights nervous, but not because of Elijah. You see, it's not a tension between two people or opposing power bases or conflicting political parties. Ahab has conflict with the one who gave Elijah a message to deliver. Ahab would like to reduce the problem to simply between two people or two power bases. Ahab thinks the threat to his life is on what we'll call an imminent level, when instead he faces a transcendent call, message, and challenge to his earthly power. Three things I want you to see that we learn about the Lord in this passage, in this encounter. The first is that the Lord is one who is there. Now, I'm kind of stealing from a book that helped shape me in my college years in a previous century. Dr. Francis Schaeffer wrote, God Who Is There? And he began pointing out then that much of what was going on was a separation as if this is the real world and God is over there and there's this gulf between the two. He was on to something, and over the years I've seen the, the insight that comes here, and more and more of us are beginning to recognize that the great division in our moment of history is between thinking that all of reality is imminent. That is to say, it's like two dimensions. It's the world in which we live and see and function, and that's all there is. The scripture points to a different way of seeing the world. It points us to a transcendent reality as well. It's like the difference between two dimensions and three dimensions. The two dimensions are true and right. I'm not in denial about that, but I wanna tell you there's more to reality than meets the eye. There's a transcendent, call it spirit if you like, there's a reality beyond just the simple physical cause and effect. Ahab is trying to make his life a matter of imminent power. Elijah knows there's more going on here than just who's got the army. Elijah would disagree with Mao Zedong. And he would say, oh yeah, guns are powerful, but God is greater. Elijah comes with a message of, that's transcendent and not dependent on imminent power. Let me give you a few concrete examples, just so you know, and can see how this works out. Now, I have uh, links to blogs where I get into a lot more of this, and I encourage you to see those. The first example I want to look at, someone who's lived out with this important transcendent perspective in a world that tries to just be imminent, one is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., let me read to you something from his letter from a Birmingham jail. 
He writes that a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law, that is, the law of God, he says. So he sees that there's a law of God, and a just law in the imminent level is just when it is consistent with that. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, note, here's an African-American Baptist pastor from Atlanta learning from a Roman Catholic theologian of several centuries ago. To put it in terms of Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in the eternal law, the natural law the law of God. Martin Luther King understood that there was transcendent reality that speaks to us all. Transcendent truth that will judge and shape the imminent truth. Now, I've read the current books, Robin DiAngelo, Ibram X. Kendi, and I've read their approach to racism. And you know what? It's a purely imminent view. It's about power bases and power struggle and who's got power and who will establish power and who determines power. You see, in an imminent view, law is expressed as the will of the group in power. In a transcendent view, law should be an expression of the transcendent truth and reality. That's how Dr. King functioned. If you want to enforce or change law in an imminent view, you need power. Just what Elijah and Dr. Martin Luther King did not have. I want to tell you, that's apples and oranges. Go to my blog post and read what Dr. King wrote. Martin Luther King sees the problem in light of transcendence, and so he can call us to reconciliation of enemies. Today, an imminent view focuses on identity groups, power, struggle, victory over the enemy, and can only be resolved by a victory. It's amazing to me to see how critically important this idea of transcendent reality as we live in an imminent world is. Let me give you a, another example, and I've got, I promise Mary Lynn, I won't use them all. I have so many examples we could be here till well after the football game. But I recently listened to a book by uh, a current author about American history. I'm kind of fascinated by American history. This was a New York Times bestseller. Seller. It kept, um, I kept seeing it referred to and heard it talked about. And it explained U.S. history in terms of essentially two social powers at work. One was white patriarchy, the other was consumerist capitalism. Now, I've been around enough that I get it that those are real things. But because of my faith in Christ, I don't think that those are the only things. Are there real social forces? Yes. Are there more forces than just social? Yes. I realized as I read that book, and particularly this author's explanation of the Civil War, that Abraham Lincoln would find this book incomprehensible. Now, I think Abraham Lincoln had some insight into the Civil War. 
listen to what Abraham Lincoln said. And this is from a, a journal entry, almost you'd call it, called Meditations on the Divine Will that they found after his death. The will of God prevails. In great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, and one must be, wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. In this present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. You see, if it was just north and south, it's a matter of cannons and infantrymen. But if there is a God in heaven, then it may be that at least one of those sides, and perhaps both, are not in God's will. I wish I could tell you the story of a, my brother-in-law, a surgeon, who's seen how Technology is helpful for his surgery, but it doesn't give him direction that faith and transcendence does. I'd like to talk to you about the kind of challenges we face in this world when we try to reduce the world to nothing but imminent power. There is conflict. When we realize that there is a transcendent truth, I may be confused about it, I may get it wrong but I treat other people differently. Let me tell you, one of my observations, Martin Luther King could talk about the law of God, and that would be his measuring stick for a just or an unjust law. The real prophets of God, and I put this in the sermon outline, they're about delivering a message of the Lord, not about delivering a voting block. They will not be reduced to imminent power alone. And if we read the prophets as if there was no reality but imminent power, we will always miss their message. There is more to reality than meets the eye. There is a Lord who is there. And the Lord who is there, Francis Schaeffer went on to say, a God who is there, and he is not silent. This is a Lord who warns something interesting to me from Moses in the Exodus event to the time at the end of the writing prophets when we see the fall of Jerusalem. It's approximately eight, almost nine centuries. It's a long time. Don't think of the prophets saying, you're bad, bad things are going to happen. Think of the prophets being sent by God, warning upon warning upon warning upon warning. 800 years later, okay you're catching up with the consequences. We look at the fall of Jerusalem and we think, oh, what awful judgment. What kind of God could do that? Look instead at 800 years of warning, of a mercy that says, oh, let's hold off on the consequences. See, the prophets, for as long as they functioned, always included the message of the Lord's mercy and consequences delayed. That's why they have a message of both warning and hope. It's there. It misses the prophets to just think of these as angry people pulling down judgment on others. That's not biblical prophet. That's angry people of imminent power. You see, this world was created to function with justice for all. When we do that, there's a flourishing. 
Do you remember JB's sermon on New Year's Day? It was powerful as he cast that vision and he talked about the grace of God brings abundance without excess. Abundance that brings a joy and a generosity for others. Live in a world with injustice and for some there may be an abundance with excess even as it crushes the poor. The prophets are deeply concerned with that. But we see a Lord who warns because he's a God of justice. Finally, they point us to know this God, the Lord, who comes to rescue. You see, the gospel is not a call for you to behave. It's an offer of consequences transferred. I tried to sum this up in my prayer and meditation through the week. The gospel is consequences transferred. By that, I want to point to this statement. The Lord takes upon himself the consequences of our sin in order to give to us the benefits of his righteousness by means of his grace through our faith. Paul would tell the church in Corinth, Do you not know that you are the righteousness of God when you're in Christ? What adoption by grace means is that we are drawn into the family of God, not simply creatures of a creator, but his grace opens a way to shape us, to give us what we could never earn or do ourselves. The prophets point to this. Friends, this is why Dr. King's I Have a Dream sermon And let me tell you something. I've got a lot of African-American pastor friends. They don't call that a speech. They know the brother was preaching. I have a dream. There is something transcendent that will shape this world. We live in this world and in this moment of history, we live with an assurance of a different reality. It's not an idle wish or empty optimism, but instead we live with a confidence and assurance about what we do not see, a confidence and assurance of the good purposes of a transcendent Savior. That's how Wang Yi is going to navigate prison. That's how Andrew Brunson was able to struggle with his depression in a Turkish prison just a few years ago. Adolf Hitler didn't have a problem with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer just delivered the message. And the message was that wickedness will be destroyed. There is hope, friends, not because I can do, but because God is who he is. And at the cross, Jesus did what he did. That's our hope. As we come to this table, we come not to receive a wage to get the benefit of what we've earned. We come to receive a gift, an expression of a God who would give his life for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God and Father, we thank you for your kindness and truth. We ask that in your mercy, you remind us, first of all, of your transcendent holiness, and then amaze us that that holiness would enter into 
real human life and, and exchange our earned brokenness for your sovereign wholeness. Father, we thank you that the church is filled with all sorts of, I love the term ragamuffins, who've been rescued, given what we hardly deserve, given more than we could hope for, given life to bring to a confused and hurting world. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You've saved us. Let's sing. centuries now, across all cultures, people have gathered together like we are here and remembered that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and then he said, this cup is now a new covenant, redemption in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So then Paul goes on to tell his church, we ought to examine ourselves, not for our performance, but for our need and come before him. This is a moment in the communion service where people are trained as Scott Presbyterians, like myself, we talk about fencing the table. And you want to make sure that folks who come here understand and know and have sought to repent of sin. And those are all good things, but sometimes we're so busy focused on that, we forget the invitation. I want to tell you that the invitation of Jesus as sinners come and receive. We come to receive on his terms. I've had the opportunity of 
discipling people struggling with a variety of addictions. And in AA, step number one is that we admitted we were powerless over our addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. In a fascinating way, the invitation of Christ is to say, take the first step. We began to understand that our addiction to sin was unmanageable. Come and receive. Here's a first step prayer. Oh Lord, I admit that I am powerless over my addiction. I admit that my life is unmanageable when I try to control it, which is the true meaning of powerlessness. Remove from me all denial of my addiction. If the world looked in and saw people who recognized their own need and found their hope here, how different that would be than the world seeing a group of people who thought they had it made. Do you see the difference in that? So we come on his terms, but he invites us to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have taken what the world would miss, these things that are very simple, this bread and this cup, and by the promise of your written word and by the presence of your Holy Spirit, you meet us here. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you do this good work, that as we come forward to receive, that your grace would empower, shape, encourage, convict, lead, clarify, meet your people and love them deeply. These things we pray and ask in the name of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen. I'm going to ask those who will be administering the sacrament if you'd come forward and we'll equip you with that. Again, just a word on our process. We'll ask folks to come down the center aisle, take one piece of bread, dip it lightly into the uh, cup, and then you can partake right there. Nella will be available in the back to uh, those of you who aren't able to make your way forward or if you need a gluten-free, do that. Otherwise... Come forward, take one dip, and then proceed. People of God, the risen Lord of the cross has come and receive more than you could ever ask or imagine. Come and receive.
Let us turn to the Father and pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we give you thanks for your kindness and grace. Lead us into the fullness of all that you have for your people this day. In a moment, we will depart. I pray that in your mercy, we can depart differently because you have loved us and you've given us a love meant to overflow in love for others. Guide our week, we pray. We thank you that you've promised good to us and that it is your word that secures that for us. Hear our voices and our prayers. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the blessing of our God, the benediction from the book of Numbers, chapter 6. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen and amen.